Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. If you need some new earbuds or you need some new headphones, go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L. You get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know? It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Oh, right, 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 everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me trying to think of what to say. This is you trying to think of what to think. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you listening. Uh, my guest today is Andrea Klein. Her debut novel is called Calf. It is available now from Counterpoint Press. It is a work of fiction that was inspired or influenced by a couple of tragedies that happened in real life, the first of which was John Hinckley Jr.'s attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981, uh, and of course in the process of shooting, uh, not only or in the process of uh, attempting to kill President Reagan, Hinckley shot other people as well. And then secondly, this book is rooted in the story of Leslie DeVoe, uh, a woman from Washington, D.C., who I believe it was 1982, uh, in the depths of uh, mental illness, shot and killed her own daughter, uh, her 10-year-old daughter, Erin. So a terrible story, terrible tragedies. And this novel by Andrea Klein uh, was inspired by these things. Maybe inspired is not the right word, influenced by. It's part of the story. And and it gets deeper than that. Uh, I think I'll let Andrea explain it in the interview. Uh, other than that, speaking of terrible stories, I think that it's hard to sit in front of a microphone Uh, on a show like this and uh, talk about what's been happening and not talk about Paris and then uh, also what's been happening in other places around the world and recently there was the airliner the Russian airliner there was Beirut there's been a lot of awful things happening related to uh, violent extremists doing crazy things human beings behaving in insane ways and uh killing people and hurting people and just being uh, awful as an airplane flies overhead 
And what I found, uh, you know, Paris uh, has gotten the most attention in the United States. And uh, some people have found that in, in poor taste when this stuff is happening elsewhere in Africa, Boko Haram. There's crazy people everywhere, it seems like. And there's uh, increasingly, you know, these militant groups or whatever, like violent fraternities or something. Groups of young men. And I guess women too. There are women suicide bombers. There's crazy people doing this stuff all over the world. I think with Paris, because I was thinking about this as I was reading Twitter, people are compa- uh, you know, saying, like, you know, why are we not uh, mourning the losses in Beirut the way that we're mourning the losses in Paris? And I think, number one, there is a, uh, a racial or cultural element to it in the West. I think people in the West are not as sympathetic because, uh, you know, people in Beirut might be Brown. They might be Muslim, Middle Eastern, you know, however, uh, people in America can, you know, conceive of it. I think that's legitimate and unfortunate, obviously. And then secondly, I think most people, uh, in America and in the West just have more of a frame of reference for Paris. A lot of people have been to Paris. It's one of the great cities of the world and it tends to be at the top of people's list. It's a beautiful city. It's intoxicating. It wins people over. And I think even if you haven't been to Paris, you have a lot of, uh, you know, cultural reference points, uh, to, to base your understanding of it on in movies and so on. It's just a familiar place. And, uh, I don't know. There's been a lot of chatter. I think there were, you know, it's a natural response to want to talk about this stuff when it happens. I found myself at a loss for what to say. as I talk into a microphone on a, on a podcast, (laughs) uh, I'm telling you that I'm speechless. How do you like that for a contradictory sentence? But I I think I'll, I'll be brief. I'll try to be brief. The only thing I would say is that I find it really depressing and annoying when, uh, people in the media panic and by virtue of that panic or by virtue of uh poorly expressed anger they they incite more violence or beat the war drum or fall into exactly the kind of hate and fear that these these terrorist people want to inspire so I mean, it's no great revelation, but I just, that's the feeling, the feeling that I come away with is just don't change anything. Don't change your behavior. Don't let them, uh, make you afraid. Don't sink to their level. That's about it. Carry on. Fuck them. What a bunch of losers. Just the worst people. And... Um, really delusional people, sad people, terrified people, terrorists are terrified and they're filled with hate and misunderstanding. And that's what drives this kind of behavior. And you know, the solution, your guess is as good as mine. I, you know, what are you going to do? People do this sort of thing. Yeah. There should be, uh, 
a manhunt. You got to find the people responsible and hold them to account. Ideally, from my perspective, you arrest them and throw them in jail for the rest of their lives with no chance of parole. But if they're shooting at you while you try to apprehend them, then you do what you have to do. I can accept that. And if they're in Syria or wherever they are and they have like a training camp or some sort of weapons cache or, you know, and you got to get rid of it. I like there's parts, there's parts of me that can understand a violent response, but uh, I think the better part of me, or at least the part of me that takes the long view is thinking like, where's this all going to end? We've got to find a better way. I don't know. I'm no expert. I'm just thinking like there's too many weapons in the world and technology's only going to get more advanced and harder to contain. At some point, just as a matter of necessity, we're going to have to figure out nonviolent ways to be together as human beings or else. These people are suffering. And delu- you know, delusional. Just so wrong-headed. I don't know. What are you going to do? You, I, and, you know, I'm not trying to uh, say that you can all sit down on the floor, crisscross applesauce, and like, you know, have a talk. I get that. It's probably not possible with people who are like lighting people on fire and beheading people. But maybe we could do more of that with. Uh, shit, I don't know. <laughs> it's so hard to parse, you know, but I'm thinking like what the, the Saudis, the government, can we, can we talk some sense to these people? Cause that's a crazy government that's fomenting a lot of really insane behavior and providing safe Harbor to a lot of uh, extremists. Maybe you work, uh, you know, from the top down or you work out on the periphery or you try to win that, that information contest that communication challenge. I said I was going to be brief. I feel like I'm rambling. I think that, uh, I'm going to focus on me. That's really the answer, isn't it? Just focus, just, you know, do what you can advocate, vote, support, dialogue, but ultimately just uh, try to be peaceful yourself. That's like the best thing you can do. I think that's the best thing I can do. So anyway, uh, those are my thoughts on that. I think we should get on with the show. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is uh, Andrea Klein. Her debut novel is called Calf. It is out there now from Counterpoint, and I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Her book is uh, it's been getting great reviews, and it's rooted in a, in a period of history that uh, I was alive for and that I remember, so that makes it especially fun for me to talk about. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Andrea Klein. So my book Calf is uh, a fictionalized account of two events that occurred in Washington, D.C. in the early 1980s. One is the John Hinckley Jr. story. John Hinckley Jr. was the person who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan in 1981. And he did that because he was obsessed with the Martin Scorsese film Taxi Driver. And it's then barely teenage star Jodie Foster. And Hinckley did that at, at his trial, he said it was an act of love for Jodie Foster, who's trying to impress her and win her love. So Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of mental illness, and he was committed to psychiatric care at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. And around the same time, there was a, a Washington resident named Leslie DeVoe, who, during a psychotic episode, shot and killed her 10-year-old daughter, and DeVoe had been suffering from severe depression. She had been suicidal. And she killed her daughter as a way of trying to protect her. So she also, in her delusional thinking, killing her daughter was an act of love. And DeVoe, like Hinckley, was also found not guilty by reason of mental illness. And she was also committed to psychiatric care at the same hospital in Washington, D.C., and while they were both patients there, Hinckley and DeVoe became romantically involved for a period of time. And my personal connection to all of that is that I knew DeVoe's 10-year-old daughter. We went to the same elementary school, and she was actually my sister's best friend. So you And you wrote about this for LitHub. You wrote an essay about the moment of finding out that Erin DeVoe had been killed by her own mother. Right. So one of your friends called. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I was just about 12 years old at the time. And in the 80s, 12 was um, old enough to be a, a babysitter. Yeah, right. And so my parents were out for the evening. And I was in charged with, you know, as best I could, uh, babysitting my younger sister and brother. And I got a call from a school friend of mine who actually lived across the street from her and told me what had happened. So I I was the one who had to deliver that piece of information to my siblings. And At the age of 12. At the age of 12. There's a scene in the novel that's pretty much how it happened, more or less. Were the memories vivid of that moment? Because of that moment when I got the call is seared into me yeah. yeah i had a similar i got like i got news of a death uh, via the phone myself and i can remember it 
like very well, or at least I think I can. Um, you get news like that, especially at the age of 12. Uh, it's one thing to learn of a loss. It's another thing to learn of a murder of a child by her mother. And the, psych- the psychological impact of that on young children, on Aaron DeVoe's peers, uh, you know, you, you, you write about that as well and, and how, you know, kids immediately start to worry that their parents are going to do that to them too. It's super heartbreaking. And I don't know, I guess I didn't think about it like that at first, like the way in which it could uh, cast doubt in the minds of children about the, uh, the love that their parents have for them. That's really heartbreaking or just like the safety that they feel with their own parents. Like that's just like, that's a real crusher. Yeah. And yet there's something about it that's emblematic of my generation, which for lack of a better term, I'll call generation X. That's my generation too. We get nothing. Generation X. No one even talks about it. We have forgotten because we are so small. Right. Demographically speaking. We don't matter to advertisers. Yeah. Um, but we were very we were the latchkey kids and we were very much left on our own uh and to our own devices the good part of that is we learned a sense of independence very early on but we really did have to negotiate the world by ourselves using what wits we had from a very early age and negotiate that was something I had to negotiate. You were a latchkey kid? I was a latchkey kid, yeah. So you came home from school, parents were gone, you sort of hung out by yourself until they so, got home? Yep. Okay. Um, and did you feel like, uh, you know, as a 12-year-old, you had younger siblings, so you have, you know, I guess something maternal happening there, or at least you're the one who's supposed to be the leader. Uh, and then you get this news, and I imagine your younger siblings are maybe looking to you to process it. My, in that moment when I told my siblings that they were, it was sort of like they already knew because as soon as I hung up the phone, I was hysterically crying and that was such unusual behavior for me also because I was the oldest and it was so shocking to them that they immediately started crying. They knew it was bad. Yeah, they were they were scared. They didn't know why I was suddenly like sobbing and screaming and collapsing on the floor. And um yeah, and I I as I said in the essay, I I told them as best a hysterically frightened 12-year-old could. I think I just blurted it out. Yeah. And what did they do? They my brother was actually very young at the time and he barely remembers this at all. And my sister, it's something that, you know, really changed her life. You know, it really... That was her best friend. That was her best friend. And to experience such a loss, really the first loss um, for us in our family, because at that time, I think all our grandparents were still alive. And we had never, we had never really experienced that. You know, maybe a great-grandmother or someone we really didn't know died and we had to go to a funeral but someone we were close to, someone we really knew, we hadn't really gone through that. Well, and someone who died out of, like, when it wasn't supposed to be their time. Exactly. Yeah. You know, tragic death. Yeah. Um, that's rough. And also, 
in the early 80s, mental illness wasn't talked about as much as it's talked about and understood today, as much as it's sort of, you know, it's, it's people will talk about their experiences with depression or their experiences with medication for whatever they're, they're living with. But that really was not discussed in the early 80s. Yeah, well, when you talk about mental illness and you talk about Hinckley, you talk about Leslie DeVoe both um, being, what is it, I guess acquitted on the grounds of mental illness? or, or not, not guilty by reason of mental illness. Okay, but aren't, isn't anybody who takes another life mentally ill? Is that an argument that could be made? It's a, it's a very difficult and confusing argument. And Hinckley's trial afterwards, the public was very upset that he was found not guilty by reason of mental illness. And many laws were changed to make it far more difficult to use that strategy. And Hinckley is actually often compared to Mark David Chapman, right. who shot and killed John Lennon just a few months earlier, just a few months earlier in December of 1980. And Chapman uh, was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. And one of the big differences between Hinckley and Chapman is class. Hinckley came from a wealthy family. His father was an oil executive, and he had the financial resources to hire a crackerjack legal team, like a top Washington law firm. Whereas Chapman was from a working class background, and he really he just had a public defender. And they actually Chapman was trying to go for the insanity defense, and then at the last minute, Chapman decided to plead guilty. And his lawyers actually tried to convince him otherwise and went sort of around his back and tried to get the judge to change it. But the judge was like, no. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's in jail. And for so life. he's in jail and Hinckley is potentially uh, going to be released soon. How do you feel about that? It's very bizarre. It's, it's bizarre. Actually, when I started writing the book, I went and did some research to jog my memory. And I did some research on Leslie DeVoe. And I, the articles that I wanted from the Washington Post were not available for free online. So I had to take myself to the library and look them up on microfiche. Old school. Old school. And um, there I discovered that Leslie DeVoe was condition conditionally released from the hospital after only a few years. And then sometime in the 90s, she was unconditionally released. So, so she's a free woman right now. She's been um, completely free since sometime in the 90s, I believe. Do you know what she's doing? I do not. Okay, because no. like, let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. She was chemically wrong, like neurochemically wrong, never would have done this had she been well. She was delusional. There was some misfiring in her brain. Um, not an evil person, just somebody whose neurochemistry went bananas. Okay? Let's just let's, mm -hmm. let's say that. You kill your own child, and then you get treatment, and then you presumably come back into some semblance of sanity how can you possibly I, I would I, I don't know what I would do I think I would just be a vegetable like I, how can you possibly function as a human being realizing that you've done such a thing that is a super heavy burden yeah I would I would say so I would think that that is the punishment is trying to figure out how to 
live, how to survive. Yeah. So, I mean, do you have any news about, like, the rest of uh, Erin's family, like her father? Or, like, is there any contact or understanding? Um, how, her how- parents divorced shortly after the event. And in the late 90s, there was uh, a long New Yorker article about Leslie DeVoe and her relationship with Hinckley. And the New Yorker writer managed to contact uh, DeVoe's uh, ex-husband, and he said he really didn't want to say anything other than it was a very dark period, and that's about all he said. Do they have other children or just No, Aaron? just one. Ugh. Um, so how long did it, I mean, how long have you known that you were going to write a book about this? Um, I started writing this book, I think, in 2003 or 2004. Was the New Yorker article any inspiration? No, I had actually not seen that article until I was deep into many drafts of the book. And it was strange to come across it because I have a subscription to the New Yorker. I'm not sure if I had a subscription at that time, but I might have and as we all know who read the new yorker it's very difficult to keep up with them and yeah <laughs> get it, through all the articles of, they're just a source so, of guilt for me yeah so i exactly piling up and um so i honestly don't know if that copy of that issue of the new yorker came through my apartment or not uh but i didn't regardless i didn't read it until i was already deep into the book okay so what was the genesis i mean other than the events themselves like what was it that you that made you decide that you wanted to approach this, and and it's a fictionalization. Yes. So it's not a it's not a work of nonfiction. No. You change names. Is that for legal reasons? Like you can't can you fictionalize living people without fear of reprisal legally? Well, you can't defame them, and you can't invade their privacy. Uh, but public figures don't have the same right to privacy as private. So who's a public? I mean, that's the thing. Is are these be- people by virtue of the crimes they committed? public figures or would Leslie DeVoe be considered a, a, a private citizen? Do you know what I'm saying? Like Everything that I included that was inspired it was, in, they, it was inspired by public acts so that is okay. Um, but you can't for instance defame someone, say they were an alcoholic when they weren't or say they slept with someone when they didn't or that type of thing. Okay. As did, you, for, did you learn all this as you were? Yes, I, I consulted you, a lawyer. Yes, oh, I'm that. I am that paranoid. Yeah. Okay. As you were writing. After. After you got the book deal. Um, I you know read several articles on what to do, including the real person in your novel. Okay. And then, um, yeah, there were some legal consultations. Of course, I live in fear of being sued by Hinckley, but I don't. I think I'm. I hope I'm okay. Yeah. And then what about uh, what about your family? You know, your sister. This is something you write about, LitHub. You, you, you wrote this book uh, for years. You were working on it without really telling anybody in your family what you were doing. Right. Or, you know, I think they knew that you were writing a novel, but you didn't tell them what it was about. Right. Were you concerned that they were going to be upset? Oh, Especially yeah. your sister? Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. I really wanted to write the book 
as truthful as I could to my own subjective experience. And I felt like I couldn't do that with the burden of their emotions about it while I was still writing it. Yeah, no, that's hard. So I didn't tell anyone was what it was about for until I absolutely had to, which was until I got, a, until I sold the book. Okay. So you sell the book. Mm-hmm. You tell your sister, I have something to tell you. And what happens? Well, my sister was upset with me. And it's a little weird to talk about this in an interview because I'm very close to my sister. But she was very upset with me. I, And also, I'm sure part of it was she was upset with me for bringing it, bringing it all up. And um, she was like, well, I would like to read it before it comes out so I know what I'm dealing with. And I was like, okay, I'll send you the manuscript. And I sort of, I sent her a copy of the manuscript with pages clipped, like, mm, think twice about reading this. You can skip this section. And I also said, you absolutely do not have to read it. Like, this is, was written a fictionalization of some of my experiences, but my experience isn't your experience. And so she, and I said, you know, read it, burn it, <laughs> do your cleansing <laughs> ritual about it. Yeah. And then, uh, she started to read it and later said, called me and said, I read about 80 pages or so, and I don't think I'm going to read it. And I said, that's totally fine. And because she said, I'm too, my sister is really the sweetest person you will ever meet. Like this very sweet, caring person. And she's really too much of an empath in a way to deal with that. And she was like, I was getting, she was getting very confused about what was real and what was fiction in the book. And like, she would call me when she started to read it. Like, what did, you know, what did our stepfather really keep a gun in the house? And I was like, no, are you crazy? <laughs> Our stepfather wouldn't even let us play with sparklers on the 4th of July. No. She's like, oh, I couldn't, I didn't know, you know. Um, because I used a lot of personal details and mixed them with fiction, that she was like, it was just way too difficult for me to keep track of what was what, what was real and what wasn't. Well, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Memory is real. I mean, even memories that are as searing as these, are, they're still slippery. You can still call. You can still find yourself questioning, or at least I can. You know, like what what really happened, or you know, am I misremembering? Like, I was thinking about uh, uh, the the Reagan assassination when I was prepping for this, and or the assassination attempt, I should say. Right. And uh, we had a neighbor in my little tiny suburb, you know, suburban hometown in Wisconsin when I was a kid, who had worked for the Secret Service, and. I, he went on to become Reagan's bodyguard. Random. I mean, mm -hmm. I lived in Mo suburban Milwaukee. How does that happen? But uh, I had told myself through the years that he had been there the day of the assassination attempt and then had gotten relocated to Wisconsin and then went back. It was all very strange. I have no idea if it's true. Mm -hmm. But it was like this story that I kind of told myself and... It's a weird memory. Like, I mean, just that's one example of how you can kind of right. like fictionalize your own memories. And like, I, I know that he was his bodyguard. I just don't know when. And I have no idea if he was there on the day that Hinckley tried to kill Reagan. But like I had 
I think for a while anyway, been able to convince myself that like he was there and like had somehow been like traumatized by it. And it's like a, like the Kevin Costner movie version of the Secret right. Service. Man, you know? Well, when Hinckley shot Reagan, he also shot a Secret Service agent, a DC police officer, and then Secretary Jim, Jim Brady. Right. And he permanently disabled Jim Brady. And recently, they did Jim Brady passed away, and it was determined that he passed away prematurely because of the condition he was left in after so after that, the shooting. Didn't didn't Hinckley get charged with murder? Like, they were going. They could have. They had cause to do it, <clears throat> but um, they weren't charging him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I think I, it would. Pro- I am not a legal scholar or lawyer of any means, but I think it would fall under the same larger case of the assassination where he was found not guilty by reason of mental illness. Okay. So you talk about, um, I think you described this, you know, this event, especially the Aaron DeVoe murder as a formative event of your youth. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. I I think it would be a formative event for anybody, uh, you know, to, to go through that kind of loss and to just be witness to a tragedy of that magnitude at close range. Um, it's traumatizing. Do you have a sense or can you articulate how it changed you? You know, like, were you, were you a more happy go lucky kid before that day? And were you less happy go lucky and maybe less innocent? I guess you're less innocent after that day, but as a human being, do you have any idea like how it may have formed you? Do you think that it had a significant impact on who you are today? Uh, can you measure that? I'm not sure, except that I felt very alone. And I'm I'm very blessed to have siblings. It also felt very much like my siblings and I were really a unit, like sort of banded together, like bound together, almost married to one another, um, probably in a similar way that only children, sometimes I look at them and think that they're sort of married to their parents because they're so close and there's only one of them. Um, but it, I think I, I really felt very alone and and very in this special bond with my siblings where as a, as a unit we were also alone and and on our own it's retrospectively kind of interesting if if you could say that someone dying is interesting um yeah, language gets tricky i talking. know i know but the i think the fact that it occurred when i was 12 which for female-bodied people is sort of the precipice of um adolescence and your body changing and D.C. itself, my family actually moved away from D.C. when I was 13. So D.C. is very much frozen in childhood, um, this sort of like pre-sexual, pre-adolescent time period. And it's interesting that that sort of happened. Really, you know, my last year of elementary school, you know, really the last year of classic childhood before you become a teenager right i moved right then too Mm -hmm. so i have like an idealized version of wisconsin in my in my memory Mm because i was just a happy-go-lucky kid there and then i think people tend to have you know more mixed memories of the place where they spend their adolescence 
maybe. Yeah. It seems that way usually with I people. I think when you're a teenager, you start to think of yourself as an adult, even though you really aren't. But you really have more opinions about the world and you have a very intricate social life that you negotiate. And you start to have a vision of, of a life away from your family, you know, an independent life yeah. than, than you do as as a child when really your family is your life. So what about your parents uh, and, and all this? Like, how were they when all this was going down? Like, what did, as a 12-year-old, did you turn to your mom and dad and say, what, what do I do? How do I make sense of this, you know? Well, again, it was such a different time period. We just didn't talk about it that much. Like, we talked about it at school, sort of. Like, the next day in school, we all went to school and... You know, all the teachers were crying. Like, the teachers didn't know what to do. I remember... Uh, That's my, always comforting. Yeah. When all, my, when all the adults are out, I, you're sobbing. At you know? one point, uh, my teacher ran out of the room sobbing. And then, of course, like, all the kids are, like, a suit, typical, like, when the teacher leaves the room. And then suddenly, like, the kids are all, you know, talking. and um, But there... Because there wasn't this, you know, well, we have to you know, we have to talk about it or we have to come together as a community or these sort of things that are more, parents are much more involved, it seems, today. Yeah. Um, that that just wasn't the culture then. So it just wasn't, it it wasn't talked about that much. I don't, and this is perhaps where my memory gets tricky, but we didn't really talk about it all that much. Do you wish you would have talked about it more? you think that would have helped you? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not into, I don't entirely know the answer to that. I don't know if my parents would be the best people to talk to. Yeah. I mean, everybody has different uh, counseling skills. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. You think you had, uh, did you, do you think that you had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder? Like, were there any symptoms, like when you look back, like with the benefit of hindsight, were you having nightmares, trouble sleeping? Are there, were there things that could trigger you? Um, because I think that's like something that in the wake of a really traumatic loss might get underdiagnosed. Like, you know, you don't really know. It doesn't necessarily manifest all the time and people might not know how to even recognize it when it's there, but it seems like that could be a thing, right? It could be. I, I really don't know if I suffered from PTSD or not. I know there was um, an article, I think also in the Washington Post, written just a few months after uh, it happened that was talking about the effects on, on children in the school. And some people were saying that their children were either like very clingy or very kind of standoffish with their parents like they were skeptical or they were suspect you know that their this could their parent could also um fall victim to a psychosis that would leave them to do this that's a horrible thing to have to explain to your kids good god i mean you know like, how do you yeah 
Being a parent can be tough. <laughs> I mean, like, how do you... It's hard enough to explain why you can't have a second cookie. I mean, yeah, yeah. let alone. So uh, why not write a book of nonfiction about all this? Why not write like a memoir? I'm the type of person I need a mask. I I need... Just the... so listeners know, uh, Andrea is wearing a mask right I now. I am. I came in costume. <laughs> But you need you like the idea, and it gives you freedom. It like, gives me freedom, and there are wild differentiations of places where I left the the true story, um, especially in the fictionalized Hinckley section of the book. Uh, it sort of mirrors Hinckley's trajectory, and then it it really does go left. And I wanted to sort of, I, I, you know. I, I wasn't sure what I would say in nonfiction other than these two things happened and they were horrible. But with fiction, I could sort of... That's a short book. Yeah. <laughs> these two <laughs> things happened. They were horrible. Is that a haiku? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's why you got to get a two-book deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with fiction, I could sort of look at larger issues of loneliness, of alienation, of the effects of trauma and uh, and tragedy. What did you learn? You know, like, I guess it's never, it's usually not like neat, like gift wrapped answers at the end of it. It's not. And I do actually in the book issue traditional resolution and none of the characters really do get a resolution in the book. And that was also important to me because I feel like that's really my experience of life is that things aren't, things aren't wrapped up in a gift box at the end with a neat ending. And, um, so I really wanted to put that in there. How do you feel about, uh, Hinckley? And Leslie DeVoe. Like, are you able to look at people uh, like that with compassion? As, as people who are ill and need treatment? Or do you have, like, you draw a harder line? It's very, it's very confusing. Um, Leslie DeVoe, like, when I found out she had been released, I, you know, went through a lot of different emotions and then but I had to admit to myself that I was glad that she was no longer suffering like what how would I feel if I found out that how many years is it 30 years or so later that she was still suffering from suicide attempts or depression or psychosis that would be horrible that a person would suffer from that for so many years without finding an effective treatment so like I think if I search myself I would say that I'm glad that she's got help and has recovered from her mental illness and she's somehow able to navigate the world with her history that's not an easy burden as it, we said yeah yeah well that's a that's I think a orange from our orange tree oh. landing or like a dead squirrel falling from the sky I right no or meteors <laughs> um 
Yeah, you know, I was talking with my wife. Uh, I was tweeting about because Hillary Clinton came out pro death penalty. Mm-hmm. So in and I was like very sleep deprived. And if I'm, it's a bad combination. Like me, sleep deprivation and Twitter is just bad. Right. So I'm tweeting about this, and I just it really bums me out. I'm anti death penalty in a pretty pretty significant way. I think it's it just hits me all wrong. Um, but I was talking to my wife about it, and I was like. You know, I say all this, but if something were to happen to one of you guys, meaning like somebody in my family, if somebody were to do something horrible and uh, take one of you away, like maybe my maybe I would be singing a different song. Maybe I would want that sort of retribution. But I like to think that when it comes to criminal behavior, and especially like you know, if we're using as an example like homicide or uh, you know a, a crime of a of a really um, dark magnitude that we as a society would be better than that and wouldn't like join the join the the killing you know right um but i guess my point is like yes sometimes you have to incarcerate people and maybe the penalty like you know for a crime that's extreme the penalty should match it and they have to spend the rest of their lives in a cell thinking about it uh, I, I can see that um but i guess i wonder if like our our world would be better if we took a more merciful approach and like tried to like is it just too pie in the sky to think like we could help these people and rehabilitate them instead of just like putting them in a in a box and locking them up and throwing away the key or like electrocuting them or whatever it is that we do well the death penalty is atrocious and the prison system in the United States is atrocious so it's really hard to it's it's really hard to figure out and but it's I think it's important to remember that people who are living with mental illness are far far more likely to be the victims of violent crime than they are to be the perpetrators of it. That's a good point. Um and there was actually a really interesting article in the New York Times by Andrew Solomon who's the sure. author of The Noonday Demon and yeah. uh the more recent book Far From the Tree. And he's written a lot about um, the Columbine kids. And in the most recent school shooting in Oregon, yeah, everyone was sort of up in arms like, well, he killed them. No he, pun intended. Yeah. He, uh, uh, he, he, was, he, was, he was autistic, and that's why they, you know, that's, that's why. And Andrew Solomon in this article said, no, that's not why. And people living on the autism spectrum are again far more likely to be the victims of violence than they are to 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 commit acts of violence but sometimes what happens is um like with any disease whether it's a mental illness or physical illness sometimes you have more than one sometimes you're autistic and also have some sort of psychopathology that has removed any any emotional connection from you, which is far, 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 far more rare than autism spectrum. Yeah. Well, what about, uh, and what about you? Like when you look at the aftermath of what happened and in your own life, um, did it impact your mental health in a way that's measurable? Like, did it make you more depressive? Have you ever struggled with depression? And if you have, have you ever, um, thought of it? as related to that event?
Um, I think I've struggled with a lot of different kinds of trauma. And I've been the victim of trauma. It's always very weird to use the V word victim because it doesn't, I don't know, for me, it doesn't help. It doesn't, I'm, but that's just my thing. It doesn't help for me to sort of cast myself as helpless. Even. Can, you, can you share what happened? I mean, in, in, in addition to the, the DeVoe murder, um, you've had other stuff that has happened. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I've there I've experienced other trauma in my life than other than um knowing this this young person who was uh murdered. And I don't even know I don't even know what I want to say. Um I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what I want to say about that. I don't know. It's very confusing. Yeah, because it's like, it's like when it comes to, like, say, depression. Right. Uh, I've experienced traumas. I've experienced periods of depression that seem like they're related, especially in the immediate aftermath. It's natural to feel depressed if you go sure. through a loss or you experience something really awful. Um, but then there have, you know, there can be other periods of life that are not quite so immediate to the event itself, the loss itself, where I could feel depressed and I can think, okay, is this neurochemistry? Is this, uh, just like a situational thing? And this is my constitution or is this somehow like, uh, an aftershock, you know, or like an echo of that event from like way back when. Right. And like, did that event do something to me internally that made me more predisposed to feel like this now? (laughs) Does that make sense? Right. No, I, I think that is an experience a lot of people have and through time or therapy or knowing yourself better you can begin to recognize those those reactions that that you have i think i am 45 and i think this really wasn't a book i could have written in my 20s or anything yeah. I, I really i really needed the well, you distance i could have <laughs> but i did not so, uh, do you ever have, did you go through therapy as a kid in the aftermath of this? No, again, I, that was, that wasn't going on. Yeah, that wasn't going on. I can only say that that really wasn't the culture of, of my family to, you know, some families are all about therapy and different kinds of therapy and, but my family really was not. Rub some dirt on it. Yeah. Rub some dirt on it. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, and then creatively, uh, do you feel like like this event or I don't know it's too pat to say that this event formed you but like were you in a, like a creative sort before this happened Did yes okay. I was yeah I was I was always I was always an artist like I was always um I was always interested in in art that was always what I was going to do with my life your parents are artists no Not no at all. nope no my Not. mother is a uh a retired historian uh, my stepfather is a computer guy. My father is a nonprofit guy, and my stepmother is a, a communications person. Okay. Uh, I do come from a family of readers. Um, my mother and my stepfather are both very genre. Like my mom is murder mystery, and my stepfather is sci-fi. And my father 
reads a lot of poetry. And my stepmother actually is one of the few people who reads The New Yorker cover to cover and keeps up. Every week? Yes. Did you grow up watching this? Like, was this like an influence on you? Reading, yeah, reading really was an influence on me. And what, we, were you, what, what about you? What were you reading as a kid? Oh, I was reading the books of the era, which were, you know, the Judy Bloom books and um, probably other books that I was not old enough to comprehend. Judy, yeah, <laughs> Judy Bloom, huge impact. Like, I think about like, as a writer, we all hope, you know, as writers, we all hope to reach readers. And to make, I guess, some sort of mark on them. She's made a huge mark. Like she like, really has. I mean, and like generationally, maybe globally. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what her book sales are and, like, how you would track it all around the world. But, I mean, the woman has left a huge footprint. I don't I don't know if kids or young people today still read them or if they read as, as dated now or not. Maybe so. I was reading, like, Freckle Juice and Super Fudge and Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. And Yeah. I mean, were there books for boys and books for girls? Sort of, they, uh, sort of, but I, I read the boy books as well. She had one uh, book with the boy protagonist called Then Again, Maybe I Won't. Okay, it kind of rings a bell. Yeah, and, um, but my favorite Judy Bloom book was Tiger Eyes, which was a, a one of her later books and one of her books for, more for um, young teenagers. Is Freckle Juice a Judy Bloom book? Freckle Juice is a Judy Bloom book for much younger readers. Okay. Yeah. I remember that one. I just I was hoping that I wasn't like attributing it or misattributing yeah. it. Yeah. Tiger Eyes was one of her more sophisticated young adult novels. Okay. Um, where'd you go to school? I went to school in, uh, I went to public school in DC until the middle of junior high. And then I went to public school in Richmond, Virginia. How was Richmond after D.C.? Well, I never forgave my mother and stepfather for leaving D.C. because D.C. has a public high school for the performing arts called the Duke Ellington School. And that was where I was going to go to high school. Oh. I was That was my dream. And then we moved to uh, Richmond where there was no high school for the performing arts and whose public schools at that time were pretty dismal. Um, but I did benefit from going. I went to an alternative public high school in Richmond called the Open High School, uh, which was really a freewheeling kind of 60s leftover. I don't know how the school board approved it being <laughs> <laughs> on some Facebook alumni group page. Someone said, like, oh, come on. It wasn't really like going to high school. It was like hanging out and getting credit for it. <laughs> But that sounds good. It was it was it was really good, and you could sort of make your own path there. Like that is like one of those schools where it's like kids make your own curriculum. Exactly. Come up with a project. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and no so, grades. No grades. No grades. I don't know how I got into college. Where did you go to college? I went to NYU. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. So NYU uh, was. How did New York get onto your uh, radar? Oh, I I always wanted to live in New York. My extended family is from New York and on that which, was that was side? my Moscow. That was my Chekhov Moscow. I'm getting to New York. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so uh what like mother's family, father's family? Uh, my mother's family is originally from New York. So you yeah. grew up going there as like a kid. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, okay, this yeah. is my place. We were um it was very weird growing up in the South because we were not historically or culturally southern. We didn't have southern, southern roots. You don't seem southern to me at all. Yeah. Um so every now and then I'll you'll you'll hear a twang. When you like, when you drink too much or something. Yeah, 
Depends. Yeah. Well, because, yeah. like, I, my family's from Louisiana. I never lived there. But, like, if I'm down in, like, New Orleans and I'm, like, you know, I've had a few too many drinks and I'm, like, talking to somebody, suddenly I'll, I'll pick it up. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is that what you do? I guess but it's more. Yeah. Like, when I'm around Southern people, it'll it'll come out more. Right. Definitely. But it it was, in retrospect, it was, it's interesting to grow up in the South but not feel Southern. And I will say that the South kind of celebrates eccentricity in a way that um, is hard to find in other parts of the country, at least in my experience. What, what do you mean? I think that just that eccentrics are allowed space. Um, and, you know, they're not crazy or they're not you know, someone to avoid. Was your family the eccentric family? No, we weren't that eccentric. I don't think so. I mean, were you, well, I was, I was definitely a weirdo. Um, what kind of kid were you as a teenager? I was, you know, I liked a lot of black and, um, I was very quiet and I'm still a very quiet person. Um, I was very quiet and, um, you don't seem quiet to me. Well, it's because we're doing an interview. This is radio. Uh, They're trying to avoid the dead air. (laughs) Um, But I was very quiet, very much a loner. Like, I would have a a tight group of of two or three friends and um, was very much into art. And, you know, I I thought it as a teenager, I thought it was cool to, like, go to the cafe work and order coffee and pretend to be a college kid. Yeah. I used to do that. Yeah. Smoke cigarettes. Do you smoke cigarettes? I did not smoke cigarettes because uh, both my mother and my sister are asthmatic, allergic to everything people. And oh. my mother would have smelled that a mile away. I yeah. always blamed it. We always like my friends and I, we blame it on one guy. We were like, oh, it's, it was Ryan. He was smoking. Yes. Me. <laughs> I, I, I did that. Yes. Uh, so then you get off to New York and like you have a performance art background. Yeah. So you, do, you didn't immediately go from like college into like the MFA and do the writing. No, I, I have only a little dusty old BFA. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but how did you like, let's talk a little bit about performance art. Like what was that? You went to NYU. I went to NYU and I studied theater. And then after I graduated, I primarily worked as a dancer and choreographer and performance artist in what's called the quote unquote downtown scene in New York. Like a Still, ballet dancer? Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> like hip-hop? Like, what is it? No. Uh, uh, contemporary dance or post-postmodern okay. dance. I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm getting all art theory on you. Right. Um, yeah, it's sort of interdisciplinary works that weave together elements of dance and theater and visual art. Okay. And uh, I performed in a lot of places, such as PS122 and The Kitchen and Dance Theater Workshop. And, yeah, and I did that. It's, like, it's an interesting call. It's an interesting um, pursuit for somebody who is um, quiet, shy. Yeah. You're up on stage dancing. Yeah. I think it was my subconscious or something. Something really attracted me to that, and I think it—I think it was to try and pull myself out of of being such a a, a a socially inept loner, was to pull myself towards something that was more ensemble, 
based so that I would actually talk to people and have people in my life. <laughs> um, and I still like a lot of my close friends and a lot of my partners have been people who have really big social personalities. And I think there's some sort of like, I don't know, genetic pull in me that's that pulls me towards people with, with those kind of like big personalities to, to help draw me out as well. Yeah. And like they can do like the legwork on the social. They can do the legwork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll just show up and, and like have a drink and sit down. And right. Like, and, and they'll figure out the person to talk to and then I can sort of join in and it'll be okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when did you get to writing? I got to writing. Uh, well, I worked, so I worked in performance, um, through my twenties and, uh, early 30s until about 2002, 2003. And then I had sort of a personal crisis uh, in my relationship to performance. And, and I I had actually done very well as an artist. Um, I had had many commissions and shows and press and whatever, but I was very frustrated I felt like I had hit a wall and I was kind of bored with myself as an artist. I was bored with myself as a performer. I think I, I think I was starting to feel kind of overly confident and that to me is not very interesting. Um, and I was also interested in, there was always writing in my performance work and I was interested in writing. I was interested in autobiography and I was interested in how to get to something more personal and I felt like I'm make a bad pun I felt like I had to step off stage in order to do that <laughs> um so I very abruptly stopped performing around um, 2003 and I stopped making performance works, uh, for a long time. And I only recently, um, I last year in December, 2014, I, I had a commission to make a new work, um, at the chocolate factory theater in New York, but that was the first time I had performed in 10 years. How did it feel? It was so incredibly stressful and <laughs> nerve wracking. Um, but that like the stress and the nerves of it were what the piece was about. It was the subtitle of the piece was the return of Andrea Klein. Oh. So it was very much about performing, not performing the relationship to what it is to be looked at okay, on so stage. Help me imagine this. Cause I've never seen you perform. Okay. You're on stage. How can like, super kinetic? Because you seem like a very uh, composed uh, individual. Like, how wild is your dance? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, when you're up on stage, are you like, would it surprise me to see you perform? Now? I don't know. Like, just well, like, I'm as I said, I'm 45, so things are a little creakier, <laughs> a little moving a little more slowly. Yeah. Um, probably uh, my earlier works were wilder very interested in in queer identity in uh yeah i mean i used to have a i used to be very skinny with a shaved head and um yeah so i don't know it's still me i'm still the same I'm still all those people yeah 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 
No, I'm just always interested uh, in people who can kind of, I don't know, have that sort of like dissonance between like, you know, like stage, stage presence versus like how they carry themselves off stage. Yeah. You know, like some people are always on. Some people are always performing. Right. That wasn't me. I was always, I was always kind of, or at least now in, in my return to performance work, I'm interested in how not performing is performing. A lot of people are. That's what this show is, kind of. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because we are performing, you know. I'm sure this isn't what you're... I'm sure you don't always talk into a microphone. Uh, it's the only way I talk. Right, I right. carry it around my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you get... So you then suddenly you're like, I'm going to write a novel. Yep. You just felt like you knew how to do that? Uh, well, you know, it took me some time. And... Uh, I, what I did was I tasked myself with writing five pages a day and I was going to write a hundred pages and then stop and then see if it was absolute crap or not. And so that's what I did. So I wrote five pages a day. When I had a hundred pages, I read through it and then I decided to keep going. And then the, the pages that you wrote, I know that obviously you go through revisions. Yeah. But, I mean, the pages that you wrote found their way into the final copy. Some rewritten, redrafted, reworked How long did form. it take you to write the book? It took about three to four years. To get it all set. Yeah. And then it took you a while to find a publisher. It took twice as long to find a publisher. Yeah. it. I had a very sad uh, journey through the publishing industry. Tell me about it. This is, <laughs> this is where you, you've come to the right place. Weep into that microphone. I, so I finished this book around 2007. I found a literary agent through a friend. Bessie Lerner. Nope, 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 nope. nope. Back up. It's it's a sad story. Please. I love Betsy Lerner. She's part of the happy ending. (laughs) Um, No, uh, uh, I had a, I had a previous agent. I signed with her and then three months after that, she abruptly resigned. Who was this? I can't name names. Okay. Um, I have to ask. I know. I'm duty bound. <laughs> I can't name names. But this person is, you don't need to worry. This person is no longer agenting. Okay. So you won't fall into the same hole that I did. So then I had to find a new agent, which took months. And then I was very lucky that Betsy Lerner picked me out of the slush pile from a cold query letter. And... Then Betsy went out with it in early 2008 and like five things were like about to happen, like five deals about to happen. And then suddenly crash, 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 crash. Everything just fell apart. All that fell apart. And then it was the economic collapse of 2008 and people were getting let go. And it was really kind of a conservative time. Yeah. <laughs> in the publishing industry. And no one wanted to take a chance on a very, very dark first novel by a completely unknown writer. So that book was dead in the water for years. But Betsy really loved that book, and she never gave up on it. So anytime there was a new imprint or there was kind of a big personnel change somewhere, she would send it. She kept sending it out, like, years um, and I had long since stopped getting excited at 
those emails. I was just like, delete, never going to happen. And then last fall, she called me and said, are you sitting down? Because we have an offer on CAF. And what did you do? It was, I actually feel really bad about my reaction on that phone call because I didn't have the like, oh my God, yes, (laughs) crying, jumping, leaping for joy. Because at that time I was doing this performance a piece in New York that I was very freaked out and nervous and stressed out about. And also at the same time, my beloved aunt was dying. And so Betsy told me that on the phone and I was like, okay, that's good. I don't really know what to feel about anything right now. I'll call you back. So I, yeah, I actually feel bad about that because she was like, we should have some champagne or something yeah, you know? yeah, or yeah. as betsy i love betsy because she said well try and celebrate it and enjoy it now because life will suck again soon enough right. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh betsy is a colleague of my agent uh and she wrote a book uh betsy's but i want to plug betsy's book because yeah. it's really good it's called the forest for the trees yeah did you ever read that i did it's a book about writing it was an editor's advice to writers yeah yeah i want to plug it because i think anybody listening it's a great book like there are a lot of those kinds of books and I've read a lot of them and that's like, so many of them are overrated. Yes. Yeah. And that one is, is maybe underrated. If yeah. anything, it's really good. Yeah. So little plug for Betsy. Um, and then you go through the publication process, uh, for someone who had to endure as long as you had to endure when you finally get like a hard copy of the book in your hands, like they send you that box or whatever. Right. Yeah. How was that moment? That was very strange. Because you, you were like, I don't know how to feel about it. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of had that, a very similar reaction because I think coming from performance, which is a very it, impermanent form, very ephemeral, suddenly I got this box of books with this object in it, this permanent object. And I was really kind of looked at it rather suspect. And then I kind of folded the box, folded it back into the box and was like, I am not sure how I feel about you, <laughs> you, you thing, you object, you thing. Yeah, it's very strange to come from an art tradition that's all about the fleetingness of it, of the of the work, and to have the the end uh, result of your work actually be a physical object a of object. a book. Yeah. Well, but it's also I think too like it's wonderful. Look, I you know. To finish a book and then be fortunate enough to get it published and then to actually see the actual book bound, mm. it's a thrill. It was thrilling. It's a thrill. Yeah. So you don't want to like sound like you're detached from that reality. But, oh, no, no. Um, but I, like in my experience, there is a kind of anticlimax to a lot of the things that when you're working towards it, can seem like, you know, that's going to be so great. And oh, my God, when it's in the bookstore and all this kind of stuff. I feel like in retrospect, and it's really hard to kind of be aware of sometimes when you're kind of grinding through the process, but the writing of it is the real ecstasy. Like yeah. The actual act of creation, especially when it's going well. Yeah. I mean, do you do you feel nostalgic at all for that now that you look back, you know, to when the thing was coming into being and you were writing your five pages per day or whatever? Yeah, I, I really like... Um the dailiness and the practice of writing. And that's something 
especially when a book starts to go into production that you you get sucked into all sorts of uh, uh, minutiae and copy editing and, and promotion and uh, emails that are so super distracting from the practice of sitting down and getting into a zone of, of what you're currently working on. So, yeah, I mean, I... I like being obsessed with something like I, I like waking up and feeling like I have to go sit at my desk and work and, um, yeah. So are you working on a new book? I am working on a new book. I've been saying I've, I'm almost done for over a year. Good for you. I'm almost done. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, I appreciate you coming by. It's such a great, uh, it's been such a great time talking with you. Congratulations Thank you. on CAF. Thanks. After all is said and done, the book is out there. It's getting wonderful reviews. And uh, you're on this show. I know. I'm so, very happy to be here. It's all happening. Thank you. All right, folks, there you go. That is Andrea Klein. Her novel, CAF, is available now from Counterpoint Press. You can find Andrea online at andreaklein.com. She's on Facebook, Instagram. Her Twitter handle is at Andrea Klein. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars for the uh, theme song music. The transitional music today comes to us compliments of uh, Brigitte Bardot. Just because. <laughs> Is it too much? Couldn't resist. I feel like if they capture any of these uh, terrorists, they should just make uh, make them listen to this for the rest of their lives on uh, at a very high volume. That should be what they do. This program has its own app, the uh, Other People app. Did you know that? Go get the app, wherever apps are available for your iPhone, for your Android. It's the best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can also sign up for premium right there within the app and get access to all the uh, episodes, almost 400 episodes. Stream them anytime, wherever you go. Uh, They'll be right there waiting for you, available at your fingertips for a small fee if you sign up for premium. You get 50 episodes for free, the most recent 50 for free, and then if you want access to everything, you pay like 75 cents a month and you get uh, access to everything all the time. It's a good way to support the show. I don't know what else to say about uh, Paris and about uh, Beirut and uh, people bombing planes and doing all this crazy shit. It's so depressing. What do you say? I don't know. I just feel like, fuck off. What's your problem? And then, you know, to be fair too, uh, governments need to do less bombing. It's not like our the United States government has its hands clean here. The Iraq war was such a fucking disaster. It set the stage for a lot of this garbage. What a horrible thing. So, you know, like it starts to get so grand in scope, you can start to just spiral. You're like, oh, the governments and the people and the millions and the religions. And you start to think about it all. And then finally, at the end of it, it's just like, okay, just be nice personally. Just work on myself. Just get uh, better incrementally day by day and hopefully that you know over time hopefully uh you know the accumulated value of that concerted effort will be worth something 
Please remember that Yeats died of heart failure and that Baudelaire died after being paralyzed and robbed of speech by syphilis. Thanks again to Andrea Klein. Thanks to Counterpoint Press. And, uh, of course, thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back again next week with another conversation with another writer. I'll have another monologue for you. The monologue stays. Let's just listen to Brigitte. And uh, whoever else this is. Should I know who this is? It's not Serge Gainsbourg, is it? I just looked in my iTunes and this is the uh, first French song that I found in my music. I think it's about Brigitte Bordeaux uh, having sex with this guy. Is that what this is about? That's okay. It's music about sex uh, created in a free society. It's about people in Paris having sex. It's not going to stop. The fucking will continue. (laughs) 